Now you can sing along in your car all the way to Hartsfield Airport like you know the rest. Uh, I bring the cater to you. That's the east side of the A. Rolling in my Chevrolet. You know I'm blowing away. I got my swishes, my duchess, my backwoods, and so much more. Anything you smoke, I bring the cater to you. I bring the cater to you. That's the east side of the A. Rolling in my Chevrolet. You know I'm blowing away. I got my swishes, my duchess, my backwoods. Hello and welcome to another Free in Our Podcast. I'm Scott Phillips. I'm joined by Bill Barron. Thank you for being. I'm real lucky. Slow it down, baby. We can smoke and ride. Skating on them like Golden Glide. That boy Chevy still riding so clean. Brains blowed out by four or five screens. On the way to Strokers, blowing my green. All right. So first, let's deal with some of the reader questions that we got. Uh, one of the questions first uh, pertained to emailing authors. Um, the, we'll, we'll talk about that in general. But the specific question was. If you email an author uh, and they send you an unpublished manuscript or something that they've got in the, in the hopper that's not available to the general public yet, is that legit uh, to read in a debate? Uh, so, Roy, why don't you start? Do you think it's legitimate to read things an author sends you that have not yet been made available to the general public? Is this a joke? Like, is this really a question? No. Not even close. Not published. Not accessible anywhere. I'm assuming for the purposes that of the question that you couldn't just like post it on the wiki because they're waiting to publish it, yes. Yeah, so I assume they don't want for, you right, to... Right, so not accessible not for other people? It's not on their personal website. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, I guess theoretically if other people emailed the author, you know, I assume you didn't like uniquely charm them with your 15-year-old debater email, but they'll send this to anyone who shows interest in like whatever stupid area of the world they're researching. So I guess theoretically it is available to other people if they take the initiative. Happen to email that author. So you still think no, right? No. No, it's not It's not openly accessible to everyone. It is not a resource that was easy. It was not a resource that anyone at any given point could have found on the internet or in the library. But yeah, but it's like if you don't have Lexis and I read something from Lexis. Right. You don't have access to that either. I understand that the 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 ability to access a journal or a database, I think, is distinct than emailing an author who personally writes something to you. The fact that like well, no, 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 it's not. He didn't like write in the email. Right, like, but they, oh. but in their response to you, they've put something that is not. There's only one person who can get it in that world. In a world of Lexus, yes, you might have to go to the library or bum a Lexus code or do something else, like you know, pay to go to the library. But if I pay $5 in order to go to the library and use Lexus, I still can't get it. That's different than having access to a manuscript or something that was done. I think there's a, there's a pretty big predictability difference here between the expectation that people should be able to do searches about the things that they are researching and be able to have a high level of research. And yes, that might include some things like Lexis that everyone doesn't have access to and standard becoming that you have to email your authors just in case they wrote something in the future. Um, I also think that because authors sometimes put things out uh, in the future that doesn't anticipate other arguments, there may not be answers to those arguments, and it's unreasonable to expect that there would be answers to an unpublished work because the field has not advanced that far. So if the argument that the author has emailed you about is actually a new argument or uh, you know an advancement in that field, then people probably will not have responded to it, and thus it's, a, it's a, an additional burden on the other team. Um, two things. The first thing is... Uh, I've often cut cards from All Academic, which is a um, database, sort of it's a free database that's just on the web that indexes articles from uh, conferences and 
uh, like conference proceedings papers, and most of those papers eventually get republished uh, in journals, but they were first introduced um, at a conference, so communication journals or whatever, um, and those tend to be unpublished works in the sense of they have never been published in an art in a as an article in a publication, but they are published in the sense that they're on the internet. I think that's kind of the same thing as unpublished work that you would get from an author. I guess the distinction is just that if it's available on an index of some sort, like there are indexes of dissertations, there are indexes of conference proceedings. Sometimes those, like on All Academic, there's actually been a couple of times where I couldn't get the paper and I tracked down the person's email and emailed them to get the conference proceeding. I'm not sure how much different that is uh, than if it's just like an unsolicited thing where you email someone and said, have you written anything about this, uh, not knowing that they had. Uh, the other thing that uh, this made me think about is some of the evidence that uh, people have been posting on the wiki this year where they email people. I know somebody emailed Peter Ennis, who's one of the Japan authors, asking about the base kickout argument, and Ennis replied with an email, and they posted that on the wiki, and it seems like people are going to read that now. I know Greenhill emailed um, Felbab Brown, the author of the counter-narcotic stuff that Gulliver was reading, and posted a card, and then Gulliver emailed and uh, got a response from Felbab Brown, and so that kind of went back and forth. And those I have a much bigger problem for because those emails are not written, uh, they're never intended to be produced as academic work, whereas conference papers or unpublished manuscripts that an author is trying to get published or that are going to be published in the future, uh, those are intended to be academic material, whereas these emails are not intended to be academic material, they're just email responses. The author obviously didn't put a lot of thought into it, uh, and it's not something that is ever getting published. So, uh, Scott, I know you said that you had a couple of thoughts about this, but why don't you share? No, I actually, but what you just said is exactly how I feel. I think that if it's something that they wrote anyway, and you email them and they give it to you, that's legit. What I don't think is legit is why in your life hey, I have these five questions, can you write a response to these five questions that I then may or may not you know, post on some random blog spot thing somewhere? Um, I guess the difference to me is that I don't think it's that much different from having like an exclusive database or like the all-academic thing you gave, I think that's an interesting example because I know like, I think it's like that Pan article in Alternatives, that dude like wrote that as part of his like PhD dissertation or something. And a bunch of people on that college topic who had emailed him, he like sent them the dissertation. So there was like more pan in case that article wasn't enough pan for you. And so I think that things like that are probably legit. Whereas like when you email someone, and it seems like recently this comes up most of the times like topicality. People just like are like, oh, do you think the term withdraw means like blah? And then people just kind of like give their best guess response. And then people are like, these are authoritative issues because it's someone. You know, it's. I think those are totally legit. Um, you know, it's like you've influenced that by asking the question. So I kind of agree with your distinction there. The one thing I will say about the whole emailing them for like unpublished work thing is that I, I guess it's just like I, if I was an academic and I had happened to write something about you know like military deployment in Afghanistan and then like 500 high schoolers were like emailing me a bunch of questions about it. I'd probably be pretty annoyed. So on the one hand, I kind of respect debaters who are like doing a lot of work and they like email someone about it. But on the other hand, I think that probably that's like way more annoying than people think it is. And you should be able to find enough cards on whatever issue it is without emailing an author of the like one good article you found. Uh, I don't know. It just seems like it's a shortcut that people yeah. use. I've, uh, I've actually, back in the day, uh, it's been a few years now, 
um, actually probably like almost 10 years, but I used to, uh, there were, I can remember two examples where uh, there was an article that I knew about and I had the citation for it, but I couldn't find it and it wasn't something that was accessible. And I wrote an email to the author and they actually mailed me like snail mail a copy of their article because they just, that's just something they don't mind doing because I showed interest in it. And I remember it was the Krishna K answer article. So I got that from him from Hawaii and then Cicela Box article about like util and nuclear <laughs> weapons. Crazy. Which is like impossible to find. Uh, and certainly, I think I did this when I was in high school, and I had no access to a library that would have anything like that. But I knew I wanted that article, so I emailed her, and she was like, sure, I'll put it in the mail, and I got it in the mail. So uh, there's nothing wrong with emailing authors, but I think uh, more people uh, email authors looking for cards than looking for actual assistance. And looking, and, and I, I think that that's the delineation that's really important, the question of whether you're looking for can you help me find additional things that are published or that are accessible that are in this field? Can you help me with my research? Seems like something that, you know, even if the person doesn't want to do it, at least it's not an offensive request where, or unethical, whereas, you know, can you write this card for me? Or, you know, is this topical? Especially given that they probably don't necessarily understand how debate works and how that evidence is going to be used in the future seems unreasonable. The thing that I find interesting is I've emailed authors a couple of times for um, help with like site lists or whatever, recommendations for stuff. And it's funny because they usually recommend books and they usually recommend books that are a little bit older that are considered kind of like seminal works in the field. Um, I emailed Stephen Wald once for uh, um, suggestions for like uh, introductory materials about realism for debaters and he gave me a couple of suggestions. Um, and it's weird because if debaters, you know, emailed interested in something like that and got that request, it seems almost 100% uh, uh, likely that they're just not going to do that and they're going to look for some other article or some other shortcut or whatever, but um, some academics probably are willing to do it, but a lot of, like, think tank people, people who work for places like the Council on Foreign Relations, part of their job or part of their reason for existence is to educate the public and try and promote their kind of public policy uh, perspective, and so I would encourage people to take advantage of that. If you, you know, if you're getting ready for next year's space topic, uh, contacting some of the uh, think tanks that do space research, you know, and asking them if they have an introductory set of materials or if they have an index of uh, an updated index of articles in their field or whatever could be uh, very useful. But back to the original question, I would say, uh, don't read something if it's uh, not intended to be published. If it is intended to be published, uh, as long as you make it available to other people. Uh, and it's not like, you know, only you can have it, that uh, I think it's probably reasonable. I also think that just the standard should be, if you email an author, it should be either to get a site list like that, or if you think someone is using their work out of context, I think it might be, it's okay to read their, their writing or their email in that instance, be like, they've tagged, or they cite you to claim this argument. Do you think that this is true? And then... If that's not true, then post that. But I don't think that you should be using it as like new secret cards. I think that, you know, for T definitions and stuff like that. And I know, I mean, this comes up all the time, like the sub-bumping app in 1998 when we were all in high school, like a group of people emailed that guy and he wrote all this ridiculous stuff. Yes, world. Um, did that, but uh, I still don't think it makes it right. And I know other people disagree, but it's not good research. It's... The it's sub-bumping thing that uh, he posted it on a website that everybody did. That everyone, everyone who wanted to could ask questions about, and he would answer those questions, and I'm sure he got tired of that real fast. Um, but the fact that you are going ahead and emailing an author is good. 
it's like good research skills, but that doesn't mean that it should be used in debate or in debates. So good work on one level, don't use it in debates. I don't know, I mean, even Bill's thing, like getting a site list, like, you can just do that yourself. Like, well, but if you're if you're like, or you hey, can search like you know, sure, IR syllabus. But it's okay to like say like, hey, uh, you've written about this. Do you have any advice on authors who also you know would agree with what you have to say on this? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I don't think it's not that bad to just say that. I mean, you might find out someone that doesn't show up on what you'd research. That's good research and good like kind of mapping things out. But I think that using emails. And then not posting them till after they're read and stuff like that, that's total joker. I don't know, I mean like, no. kids this summer, after six weeks of the seven week camp, I would send them a site for a journal and they'd be like, I don't know how to get this. And I can just see kids being like, huh, I could look up more sources myself or I could just like spam every IR professor in the country and get them a record. It's just like, look it up yourself. Let's put it this way, if they are willing to at least go get those articles after they spam the guy, then it's worth it already because they're all lazy. Like, I mean, you're like, they won't get a site, but they'll go through the process. I mean, if they, at the end of the day they get articles that they're going to read, I don't care how they do it. As long as I don't need to make the site list. What? Well, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> what kind of, what kind of funny weird. example is that a couple of years ago at Emory, uh, someone who was actually pretty successful asked me like how she could find like people who were writing about what she was and what she was doing and I was like well you could email you know people in the field and kind of ask them and I wrote like a little template of like what I would say in the email and she just copy and pasted it and then like BCC'd like every professor she could find like googling things on that and it was like through my research I've come to see that you are like an expert in this field could you give me some blah 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 and she like sent it to some dude who like wasn't anywhere near that field and his response was so badass it was like you must have terrible research skills if you've come to find me as an expert. I've never done anything in this field and no email. But I think that that's what they're going to do. I don't know how that's relevant to anything we said. But because no. you're like, oh, at least they're taking the initiative and emailing people. It's like, no. They write one sentence and then copy and paste 50 emails. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's fair. Then you should put some time into those emails. That's what I do. I put some time into the emails that I write to those people. Well, not everyone has the interpersonal skills of a Roy Lovecraft. Well, that's something they should work on. You know, it's part of their maturation process as a debater. Well, I guess one thing that uh, kind of related to this is that, what say, what do you think if, like, let's say you read kind of an obscure app, and someone read goes for tea against you, and they read one of these email cards where they like emailed someone about your app, or like you think this is topical? I think that like that is ridiculous. Just making an argument. About you should punch them in the face. Yes, obviously. That's what Roy would do because Roy's gangster like that, but. I think you should be able to just like make an argument that this evidence is not legitimate. And if that's their only card for tea, I don't really think that you should have to make any other answers. What do you all think about that? And then punch them. Well, I think you should answer the argument, but I don't think that they've read evidentiary support for it. So it's like they made an analytical tea violation with, you know, analytical reasons why it was true. It's particularly strange to be saying someone who doesn't know anything about debate to make an argument about topicality. Well, it's like, like everyone you cite for topicality doesn't know anything about debate. It seems like the, it the doesn't Black's Law Dictionary does, though. However, uh, an expert, you know, thinks about you know if uh, whatever uh, the case is is topical. I don't think that that is particularly relevant unless you have. I mean, essentially, for one of these topicality arguments, you have to win what your interpretation of the term is. And you can cite expert evidence about that, and then depending on whether the plan is an example of that or not, it's topical or not. I don't know. 
the, I guess, I don't know if I've seen kind of a violation card that's from email, but uh, it seems like a non-starter to me. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you should be able to regurgitate this information into a reason why that's the case. I don't think you should just say that just you read an email that's illegit, but be able to explain why that's the case. So you go back, rewind, and then write some reasons why that wouldn't be permissible, because just saying that it's not going to get it done, but yeah. Margaret, anything? I don't think you have to say a lot more than that. Um, it's like, if <clears throat> if you can successfully demonstrate that, you know, this was an email and wasn't accessible to people and is from someone who, you know, despite knowing about the field, cannot really speak knowledgeably about the specific topicality violation, I think that's pretty much what you got to do in front of me. I also I think, I, I mean, I also think that, like, when people are like, well, we put it on the web and stuff like that, or we either they say we either put it on the wiki, which means that you have to be tracking every single person's wiki update in order to like it's not an easily searchable thing. Or three minutes before the debate, they created a website called We Found This Card versus Your and well, it's on the internet. It's legitimate. I mean, maybe that's a reason why we need to like hold the community to a higher standard in terms of where it gets its evidence from and what constitutes evidence and where its research is from, but. I don't think that the fact that it's on the internet, on a random blog spot, or on their team's wiki makes it in and of itself predictable. Because that's the argument they make. <clears throat> that they're like, we put it on a website. Well, I think that the whole kind of like, if it's on the internet, it's fair because like people will write answers things kind of like dumb. Because not everything that gets published on the internet, not everything that gets published in a journal do people take the time to write answers? Especially if it's dumb. No, but I think the opposite is true, that it's like, if it's not published, then you can't expect people to have written answers. But yeah, the like, this was available means that scholars in the field are going to read our blog and post answers to it? No way. Well, I guess what I'm more referring to is like a lot of times in like fairness or like kind of ground debates, people make the argument, oh, literature checks because if we found a card on it, therefore there should be like answers to it, and I'm just more saying that I think that notion is flawed. Yeah, the, especially because the more uh, <clears throat> sort of strategic the argument, the less likely there is that there's an answer in, because there's a natural incentive for debaters to pursue kind of the extremes of a particular subject, so uh, it might be true that uh, there's that, that that's in the literature, but that it's kind of a, um, uh, at the margins of the literature, and so it's not something that's centrally discussed, and I think that's true of a lot of things. People use that literature checks argument, but just because it exists doesn't mean that it's uh, sort of a central topic of discussion among experts. I guess that sort of uh, raises the question of what predictability means in that context. Like, does predictability mean this is something that people in the field are discussing as part of this field? I think that is a pretty different definition of what is predictable based on literature than we found this in a Google search that included the term presence or something. Um, and I think that if you're AF and you're, and you're making the first of those arguments, that is an argument that you should make more substantial than just literature checks, you know, and you could have found this, because it's, it's a really pretty different argument to say that something's central to the field. I find that pretty persuasive, that it's like if you can demonstrate that something is an actual discussion in the field, then that's different than we found it, literature checks. I mean, I guess, but like, 
amongst anarchists, I'm sure a lot of things are central to the field. Yeah, sorry, I, I don't disagree. I, central to the field of this particular topic, right? Not like, you know, somebody on the internet once used the word military presence in the context of your sweet anarchy app. But like, that now anarchists talk about all the time. But like, you know, if, if there's a an issue of a major foreign policy journal that deals with military presence that talks about your app, I think that apps can more aggressively leverage those types of arguments than they do at this point. Yeah, essentially, the argument is that like not everything on Google is created equally. The question of what uh, what a well prepared team should be responsible for uh, having researched and being prepared to debate um, maybe in this day and age shouldn't be infinite. It shouldn't be any article on any database or in any you know website ever. Um, you could certainly make the argument that that is the standard or should be the standard, but maybe a standard that uh, you know sort of holds the uh, or defines the literature more narrowly uh, makes a little bit of sense. I don't know. It'll be interesting, I think, especially for next year's topic, because there's going to be a lot of kind of obscure resources that get consulted or cited. And, uh, you know, to say that it exists in the literature, uh, therefore the negative needs to be prepared, kind of places a large burden on the negative if that literature is defined. I think, I think we talked about this maybe once before, because I think it made Scott angry, but. There was this post by Branson on eDebate a couple of years ago about what is research or what is evidence that I think is good. It's, I think, in April or May 2006 or 2007, there was like a discussion about like evidence quality there. And I think that uh, we, I think it was segued with the whole SPS stuff that was talked about by people on the energy topic, but um, if you go back to those eDebate archives, which I guess are what, ndtc.com? And look at those archives for theirs. There's a good article that can help you make this ar that argument about why, you know, what we consider research now is not actually good research, and what we consider evidence is not really uh, good evidence, and kind of a shift, you know, says that we should pursue a shift towards you know, more scholarly, more published stuff, and less of the blog stuff that seems to be making its way, creeping itself into the community. Or at least authors who are credible within the field who would be responded to. Because I guess some credible authors do have their own blogs and stuff like that. All right, that was a really long and drawn out point to get to there. Uh, Let's move on. I'm uh, past this email thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the other question that was in this email, along with that that email question, was uh, kind of like how much emphasis do judges put on evidence versus explanation of this evidence? Um, I don't know. There's like a bunch of numbers in here, comparing <laughs> like how well something is explained or something. But it seems like the gist of it is first went to the SDI at one point and got some equations. How basically how well, does someone have to explain the warrants in a car in order for them to get credit um, for extending the evidence? Um, so I guess let's just start with that. I guess, it, to me at least, I think the amount of explanation you have to do is proportional to how much response the other team makes. So if you read a card that says winners win and the other team drops it, it doesn't say anything about it. I don't think you have to re-explain the like, thesis of winners win one-on-one in the 2 r when you extend it, whereas they read some evidence and you know made arguments or whatnot, then you probably need to explain uh, the warrant and your evidence more. I guess the kind of like where that falls apart is if a card makes like 20 arguments, you know, then you probably have to do a little bit more explanation. But it seems to me in general that 
you know, you get credit for the card until the other team makes a response, and then when they make a response, that's when you have to start like explaining and comparing the warrants. Yeah, I think that this is an, it's this complicated issue, and we had this conversation with uh, some of our kids when we lost the debate at St. Mark's when the other team conceded a piece of evidence or a couple pieces of evidence, and we spent a lot of time explaining those cards and kind of re-explaining stuff that was dropped and then didn't get to something that needed to be answered, and then we lost on that thing. And I think that kind of figuring out you know, what is, where you can spend less time or where you can spend more time. And I think that most judges will agree with Scott, and I know I do on this one, that's like, if the piece of evidence is dropped, then you can spend less time explaining that. I mean, obviously you can't just say they dropped this piece of evidence. And, you know, maybe if you read like a bunch of cards saying it, you can group those warrants and extend them, but it requires minimum explanation there. I think that pieces are arguments where there is a lot of contention is where you want to be spending most of your time, especially in the 2NR and 2AR, and less time where pieces of evidence are dropped or they don't have a, you know, a response to those arguments. So, you know, there's no like purport, there's no equation of like, if they spend 15 seconds on this, you must spend X amount of time explaining this argument, but it's kind of relative to the debate itself and the importance of the argument. So you have to assess how many arguments, did they respond to it? What was the quality of their response? And how important is this argument for winning the debate in terms of how you explain or extend that argument? I'll say two things. First thing is that I don't think judges are nearly reflective enough about questions like this. I've seen uh, a lot of decisions where uh, judges just kind of, in some instances, uh, read evidence and read more into it. In other instances, kind of uh, chide the debaters for not doing enough explanation. And even from round to round, I think that that standard kind of fluctuates, and I would encourage judges to think more about that, because I think if you have thought about it in advance and then consciously think about kind of what standard you're applying to the debaters in a debate that you're judging, you can be more consistent and you can be more predictable, um, because in the absence of uh, kind of a, a pre-determined uh, uh, policy or threshold for what constitutes sufficient explanation, I think that a lot of times you can just kind of um, make whimsical decisions. Well, let me interrupt you there for a second, Bannerman. Like, how do you think that you should like convey that to the student? Like, once you've thought about it and you've decided how you're going to evaluate it, because like one thing I always look at, like basically before debates now, the first thing I do when I'm coaching someone is I like look up the judge philosophy and like try and glean what I can from that to like explain to kids. And like maybe one in ten has any explanation of like how I look at evidence or like how I compare yeah. it. So like, well, I mean, that's I think that's my point is that. When people think about judging philosophies, or when we, uh, like I read all the philosophies that get posted on the uh, wiki, the way that people write judging philosophies I think is archaic and it reflects um, kind of a previous generation of debate. The core questions now are much less kind of what is your threshold one theory or, you know, I mean everyone writes the same things about disadvantages or like we like case debates or we think picks are good. That doesn't really matter, that doesn't influence the way people debate. The thing that influences the way people debate is where do you stand on the continuum of evidence focus versus explanation focus, uh, what is your uh, kind of method for evaluating the debate, do you uh, give debaters credit for more than what is verbally read, uh, do you place more emphasis on the explanation of arguments within the debate, do you consider evidence as argument or do you consider evidence as support for an argument that has to be verbalized by the debater, those kind of questions I think are the ones that fundamentally divide uh, sort of categories or classes of judges. And so I think judges should think about that 
Uh, and even if they're not 100% sure what they think about particular issues, they should say, you know, as a general rule, I think that evidence has to support an argument, and so if the argument wasn't communicated to me, I'm not going to read the evidence to glean an argument from it. Or they could say that they place more emphasis on the quality of the evidence, they'll review the evidence, uh, explanation can supplement that, but not kind of overcome that. Um, but I think people should put that in their judging philosophies um, so that they can help communicate that to debaters. Uh, the second thing that I was going to say uh, is that I think the standard that I use and that the standard that I uh, think is the best standard is that uh, once an argument is explained once, it doesn't need to be explained again in the absence of a compelling refutation of that explanation. So uh, for me, what what that the impact that that has is that if I don't understand the argument when it's initially presented, so if you're reading a really short card or a card that's read incomprehensibly, I don't give you credit for having explained that argument until maybe in the next rebuttal you explain the argument. But if I understand the argument when it's first presented, then I agree with Scott that in future speeches, if that argument is not responded to, I don't think you need to re-explain it. And that places more of an emphasis on clarity and just communication, but I think it's dumb that sometimes debaters will just uh, fly through something that is obviously incomprehensible, even if like a few words uh, are understood, even if the judge knows that the argument is like, you know, yes hegemony, no challengers or whatever. Uh, if there's no argument that's communicated, then I don't think the judge should say, ah, they don't have to explain that argument anymore because it was dropped. But if at the initial presentation the judge understood an argument, then I don't think that you need to do any further explanation. Do you think the other team, though, has to say that the, like, in your world, let's say I read X card incomprehensibly, right? Mm -hmm. Other team just skips the card, doesn't answer it. And the two in arm, just like, they dropped our winner's win arm. Mm -hmm. Do does do the if you didn't understand that the card what the card said or the warrant behind it in your world does do you give them credit for the winners win argument uh, like you know that you know that the tag said winners win the one the neg dropped it mm -hmm. one arrow was like they conceded winners win two and R dropped it again two AR is like winners win dropped that's all I need to say yeah I, I don't import an understanding of what the term winners win means into the debate so I don't know what winners win means. I don't know how that impacts the link. I don't know if that takes out the link, if that turns the link. you got to make an argument. Winners win. Okay, let's assume... Really, I, I think judges kind of do that all the time. Like, if somebody says reasonability... Right, that's, that that's my... Right. Through the two I think it's inconsistent. Because in cer certain buzzwords then become laden with understanding that isn't being communicated, whereas other things are not being given the same acceptance. But the, the argument, winners win, quote-unquote, is not an argument, obviously. What? Sure, except that we've given it meaning for right, but we the should, that's community. my point. But it, the, the interaction... We've given lots of things meaning. I mean, do you think every time somebody says solvency, they have to like be like, solvency, that means does the plan you know, effectively resolve the issues of course not. in the advantage? But there's a difference between... Maybe he's betraying your Dartmouth K background here. There's a difference between jargon that's used as shorthand and argument. I don't think that you should be able to say... I, I don't think jargon replaces argument. Jargon is just used So is it like the lack of verb in Winner's Win? So it's like if I say no solvency and that argument gets all the way through the 2AR without... You know, I guess. But that's still, that would need to get applied to like what part of the case don't they solve or why. What, I don't know what that means. Uh, solvency obviously exists. Yeah, Whether sure. Solves, I have no idea. I guess I, I think that you're making an interesting normative claim about what judges should do, but I think that you know not that's not necessarily what judges do. Of course. Do. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it, I think a lot you of times there's do. a 
I, I know, see, I paused because I thought maybe I could, but no, Scott was listening. Uh, but I, I do think that there's, there's also a degree to which that the level of explanation matters less than whether the judge thinks it's a good argument or not, you know, normatively to themselves. I just don't understand how your world is not extremely interventionist. You have to you have to intervene to give meaning to the yeah, term he's, winners. He's win. like saying, "I'm going to stay I'm out saying, of it." I'm not going to give you credit for what I've heard. X team says something. The other team is like, <laughs> and then they're like, "Hey, they said <laughs> to our argument," and you're like, uh, "Well, well th that's the thing. It begs the question: What's an argument?" No, it doesn't beg the question. If there's winners, no one begs the question. By the way, by the way, <laughs> just putting that out there. There's no begging. There's no question. Uh, the point is, is that. You extended twice something. But the other team, the other team said nothing. Not, they were like, le they did less work than you. That's my standard as a judge. Your, your interpretation is that mine is like your standard's like whoever sucked less. Well, yeah, exactly. In these, well, in, the, in the absence of a response, the fact that they couldn't explain their winners win argument to the extent that it becomes an argument means that they probably are not doing very good. Well, but yes, they but they are doing better. They they're doing, they didn't they're have to in the absence of an answer. In the absence, they're what doing, did they have to spend their time on if their argument was so so compelling and so crushing? They were doing something else. Who knows what yeah, they were doing? It they were, winners win. Maybe it's like, you know, a slightly less good standing argument. I don't yeah, know. It, the winner's win was obviously just a small example. The point is, is that in that instance, they are doing more work. But what do they get credit for? Well, they're not getting credit for anything in your world. What is what is winners win? Mean? What is the hold on? Why does the other team get credit? They're not getting credit. Well, they are because the in every other world the judge is like this argument was dropped by you. It's not an argument. The judge is making it an argument by importing previous understandings from previous rounds or from okay, knowledge so, outside of the okay. Period. So if they're like instead of winners win, they're like winners win, presidents get victories. Victories leads, not an argument. Victories cause more victories. That's an argument. So if the, so if the tag is if it's a good tag, basically, if it's an argument. So if instead of them saying winners if win, if they say the plan is a win for Obama, but what if they don't that he gets what if they don't explain the it? Issue? What if they just read the tag and were like then in the block and then we're like winner in the two and two hour just like winners win. The tag was good in the. You see how arbitrary it is? No, it's not arbitrary at all. It's arbitrary to import understandings of argument that are not derived from what has been debated inside this particular round. The fact that the judge knows what winners win means in a previous debate or how it is usually used in debate doesn't Does mean that they should apply that to this debate. Does it have to be a debate term for this to be true for you? Like, does hegemony come with meaning that winners win does not? Well, I know what hegemony means. Well, right, but you know what winner's win is, too. Well, I, I so want to know like, how that... <laughs> I obviously know what winner's win is in terms of how it's been uh, in the debate argument. The question good. is, right, how guess, does this interact with the debate? Sure, sure, sure. I guess but what I'm saying is that do you... You're trying to say that winner's win has no meaning until the debaters describe what winner's win means, right? The or how it apply, what that means in terms of this dissent. Well, okay, but I mean, it seems like there are lots of other terms that, you know, bring meaning with them that debaters don't explain. Why is that very like much what? different? Hegemony. You have to know what that phrase means. Hegemony is not an argument. Let's think about this. Let's think about Ferdinand de Saussure here, Bill, and my random K knowledge. This is not a tree. You are ascribing their random words that you understand the meaning of, that you know that you know what they're defined as, and those are okay. Like you knew what hegemony was, but if I didn't know what hegemony was, should I have to explain that to the judge who didn't know what hegemony was? Of course not. But there's a Why difference not? between but the term. 
or a subject of the debate and an argument. You're conflating vocabulary with argument. But your interpretation allows that to happen also. Because you're like, well, I have to under have a full understanding of this before. Or I'm saying that by just saying words that do not constitute arguments, you have not made an argument, regardless of whether the judge understands how those words could be shorthand for an argument that could exist. What if they're talking about something completely different and you understand? I mean, it just seems like your world allows for much more vagueness on this. My interpretation and the way I evaluate debates is who has done more work in the debate to do that? A team that doesn't answer an argument has done less work than a team has, that has made a wholehearted, maybe half-hearted, effort at extending an argument. I've, I've, I've sort of lost track of the original discussion. Is there a card for winner's win on the 2AC? Yes. But you don't, but nobody calls the card. It's, well, it doesn't matter because he, if he... If well, he I understand works, that Bill doesn't call the card, right? Because it's like Bill thinks they haven't made an argument for right. which there is a card. And you probably don't call the card because you're like, I know what winner's win means. I don't call for the card because the other team didn't answer winner's win. And I, as a judge, know what winner's win is. And I know what hegemony means, too. And I have an understanding of both. It sounds awfully interventionist, Roy. No, it's you not. You know a lot. You're bringing to the debate. Yeah. That's well, I do know a lot. I can't, I, can't, I, can't ba- I can't deal with the fact that I know things. If I, if I can try and be Solomon here and solve this dispute, I think what Batterman is saying is that, like, He's not saying I don't understand the words winners win. We know he understands it. What he's saying is that there's like a multitude of warrants that could explain the phrase winners win. And until the team explains what that warrant is, he's not giving them credit for it. But he's also a phrase winners win. But the other team in that world has dropped an argument. He's saying if they didn't clearly explain it, they haven't dropped it. They dropped at least a piece of evidence. They dropped a claim. Well, it's like it's not really the warrant that you're upset about, though, as much as it is the implication, right? Like, if they say winners win turns the link, are you okay there? No. Scott's right. Okay. They have to say winners win, like... But if they explain the warrant in in a way that that makes it obvious... I I also think this example is, like, tainted because, like, Roy is in love with the politics disad, whereas I bet if Roy were to judge a critique team and they were, like, in the 2 and R, like... Ontology first, I don't think is an argument. I don't think serial politics is an time. argument. I think you have to explain your argument. If you've explained <laughs> it once, then I think that in subsequent speeches you can just make reference to previous explanation, which was what the original question was about. So if the team says reps come first, That's obviously not an argument. the 2AC does not make a framework argument, and the negative was like, they've conceded that representations come prior to policy. Because reps, that's, let's say that. In, in your world, reps don't come first now. Even though the tweet said nothing. They haven't made an argument yet. Well, me, me, can we agree that the app has not made an argument either on this? They've said less. Apparently. They've said this less. Is your hypothetical. They've said less than the negative. I mean, you're... So in this instance, if you would not... Most debates, Roy, are not debates where one side just well, says some things and the other side says nothing. Sure, but in, you, but in there this... There are a lot of arguments but in the ex- that are made in the, in the extreme, debate. In the arguments extreme... Arguments that... Arguments that have more explanation... But in the extreme... But it, taken to its extreme in your world... Okay. Then the negative... Yes, taken to your extreme... Taken to my extreme, a team that is debating a team that responds to none of their arguments does have the... No, they answer everything except for Rex comes speech. first. They've made answers to everything. They just forgot. How do you answer reps come first if that's the only argument? That's not an argument. No, no. They answer everything other than reps come first. This is like the now key thing. You can say now not key. You can say later (laughs) key. You can say many things. I mean, I just think that that's stupid because the debate is about argument, not about technique and 
playing by a line or whatever. It's like just because someone uttered a few syllables that have become meaningful because we've heard them before doesn't mean that they have communicated an argument. And it's not a particularly high threshold. It's not like you can't communicate an argument. You just have to make an argument, not just a, a statement. All right, well, let's move past this to a kind of a related but different example. So if the 2NC gives like a, a well-explained impact overview, like turns the case, magnitude outweighs, da 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 and the 1AR doesn't go there, if the 2NR is just like impact analysis conceded and moves on, do you think they have to say more than that, or is that sufficient? Uh, I mean, I would give them credit for everything they said in the 2NC then. Uh, the only question would be if there's some other argument that's in the last rebuttal that would affect that. Uh, like if they compared it, assuming they went for the current plan in the 2NC but then didn't or whatever. Uh, but certainly I would give them credit for what they said before. I mean, no I still way. think it would behoove them to explain it more to insulate themselves from whatever the F's going to say. Would you be surprised if I said I didn't listen to anything you said? Can you repeat that very quickly? So the 2NC gives like 30 seconds of detailed impact analysis. Right. The 1AR doesn't go there. The only thing the 2NR says is impact calculus conceded and moves on. And the 2NC was very detailed? Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. That's all you need. See, I agree with that, but I don't think that that's the way most judges would see that. I think really? they'd be like, oh, you didn't explain that. But How many times do you have to do that? things in this debate? That's why I yeah. think the standard that you have to explain it once is in the absence of representation. No, that's why I'm saying you agreeing with that supports Bill's earlier point. Is what I just tricked you into saying, Roy. No, it's I, not. I don't... Because you just said whether or not the argument... Uh, I no, just, but, I, it's a necessary, sufficient thing, Scott. What Roy thinks explaining it once is sufficient, it's just not necessary if the other team has dropped it. Expl obviously, nobody's like, better not explain it well, because they might answer But he... It. Question. He said, "Did they explain it well before he agreed?" Well, no. But you, in this example, if they just said disad outweighs and turns the case, and then the app was just like nothing, and if they didn't give a warrant for DA turns the case, and the app was like, "We are going to totally bone this," and they're like, "They've conceded the disad turns the case," then I might uh, pull the trigger there because the app is like not conceded any. If they've they've not answered anything, so the nag at the top of the DA is like, "DA turns the case." Stops. <laughs> then goes. Now nah, you this meet example, next. If they're this and terrible, the app doesn't hold on, go there. Hold on, hold on. And the two end is like they conceded the DA if, turns if, the case. If they're this terrible and they blah blah blah, blah, blah then yes, and this and that terribleness. I, they've done. I'm not. I have not thought this out as much as I would like for saying this, but I'm not sure that saying winners win and saying DA turns the case and then stuttering and saying nothing else is exactly the same thing. Bill was nodding, and then he realized I was saying the opposite, and is now making faces at me. Wait, I'm. I, she's saying winners win because it's like I think an evidence. Winners win because both because it has evidence and because it's it's a like more fleshed out argument in terms of what it be. It has a much more stable meaning than DA turns the case uh, is is something that might be closer to you know reasonable. You think sometimes when people say DA turns the case, they mean DA goes straight for the case? Like, no, I mean that it turns. the warrant for a winner's win is almost always the same. Like, what, there's like... What is the warrant for a winner's win? I don't know, he's got a lion, and he's taming it, and he's standing lion up, and then all the lions, they sit down, and I, there's something about lions and whips. What do you want from me? The, the point is that we have an understanding of what winner's win means in debate, whereas DA turns the case is different in every single debate. I don't know. I, I'm not so sure that that's an argument. What that if the case advantage is the plan is a win? <laughs> <laughs> Only in that circumstance. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Before, I think we've pummeled this into the ground, but the, the last other thing that this person said is like, do judges look into things that aren't in the debate, like the author's qualifications and whatnot, when they evaluate a piece of evidence? Qualifications that are not raised in the debate? Yeah. Hmm. 
I will say before I answer this question, I do think that the one the one thing Bill and I seem to agree about on this is that you, you should ask judges about this stuff because there is such a discrepancy amongst people and their opinions on this. Like there could easily be, you know, in front of me you might have to do less work on something than you'll have to do in front of Bill. So kind of having that established is good to know and maybe judges should put that in their uh, judge philosophies just because you know, sometimes people will be unreasonable on some issues. Um, Before Roy moves on to the the other example, I think that that's also a perfect example of something that you should write down after the debate, because those are things that I do think, even if Bill is right that judges are more flexible or more malleable on that than perhaps we would want them to be, I do think that the difference between judges is greater most of the time than the difference within one judge from round to round. Um, And you know, that's not something that pe- most people put in their judge philosophies, and if you can really get a decent idea of how this judge decided that, or what phrases they used, you know, if you have a judge who's using phrases like, well, they didn't answer this argument at all, so I didn't need you to explain it, that's pretty different than, I didn't understand this argument the first time it was presented, so I gave it very little, if no weight, even though it was dropped. Those two things are things that really help you in front of that judge in the future, and be able to distinguish how you're going to win out those close debates. That post round is really probably more useful than the judge philosophy. I think judge philosophy is just like kind of like on house. It's like everybody lies. It's like the judge philosophy is like in an ideal world, this is how I might evaluate it. And then the post round it's is how... It's not an ideal world. It's like how I think... It's like how I think I might be... It's hard to, to yeah. assess. It's how I might be thinking I might decide this debate. And, but the post round is where you get the real reasons and the real way they kind of evaluate it. So... Definitely write down those things. Yeah, I think the, the, the only time that the judge philosophies become useful is when people start posting things that people have argued with them about. So it's like, I have been told that I am 2x, and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, definitely 2x. Um, and that's and that's something that sort of becomes useful over time. But it's like the, the standard judge philosophy, to be honest, is pretty hard to write because it's like the things that differentiate you are not really things that most people understand because... I know that this surprises all of you. Everyone thinks that they're a really good judge. Um, and you all think that we're all terrible. So um, given those two sets of circumstances... I'm great. I'm being able... You. Right, exactly. Uh, being able to evaluate that and be able to actually coherently explain how you make a decision is actually pretty difficult. There should be some kind of webpage like eBay seller reviews where like it has the person's judge philosophy and then people can write like... So you know, like 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But to be actually, the, the one thing I was thinking about was that if you rewind back to what Bill's like questions about like what judges should answer, I think that because realistically no one will update their judge philosophy to actually do that, I think that you should take that template for what Bill said and then you as the debater should write that out in terms of, and then explain if like the argument was like conceded why you shouldn't have to because of this, or this is how I should evaluate the debate round. And I think that I, as a judge, am sympathetic to when debaters tell me how I should evaluate the debate round. If the other team has no kind of explanation or no response to that, that that is the most, the easiest way for me to decide the debate and kind of like the weight, what I want debaters to kind of do. So, you know, say that, you know, there was no refutation here. You might not think this is a coherent argument, but their standard should be that they have to explain it. So even if Bill has an opinion that, you know, is contrary to mine, if you tie his hand and say, this is how you should explain it, that's an argument that you've now made with a reason that he might not agree with, 
but you've made an explanation here. Or if like, you know, you had a really crappy piece of evidence on an issue, you could be like, you might value evidence more on some issues, but this argument was made in the 2NC, it was conceded by the 1AR, the fact that there's no evidence behind it shouldn't matter because, well, you know, warranted arguments are better than having a missed card that's not explained. And kind of do that, kind of work for the judges, and that's the things that you all don't do enough of in debates that help us decide debates a lot better and help us help prevent this intervention and needing to know how a judge thinks on an issue because you've now told the judge how they need to think about the issue. And I, I to extend on that, I think that the, the critical time where what Roy just described is really important is when you have dropped an argument. Um, if you, you can get almost any judge to be Batterman by explaining, yes, okay, the 1AR sort of conceded that argument, but it was not an argument in the 2NC or whatever. Um, and, you know, winners, you know, I guess winners win probably the next thing, but whatever. Uh, you know, disad turns the case is not an argument. It does not meet, you know, T argument, prima facie, is not there. We should not have been forced to answer it. Yes, obviously, in an ideal world. Would have been better had we done so, but you know, if this does not was not an argument when it was presented, we didn't have an obligation to answer it. And I think that you know, not ninety percent, but maybe a good thirty percent of draft arguments that I see are are far more of the argument was made very slightly arguments than you know you drop T, um, or at least at the at the level of debate where this becomes an issue. Um, I think that most draft arguments could probably be resolved that way. And I think that I will definitely second Roy's conversation about uh, the question of whether a piece of evidence uh, rises to the level that it should be considered evidence. I think that more people should call shenanigans on, like, this is not evidence. Um, our warranted analytic uh, is far more coherent <laughs> than whatever piece of evidence they just read. That's, that's probably a personal bias then. Yeah. That segment was good. If you didn't listen, you should rewind that. That was very good. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Particularly my part on that. Of course. What's next, Scott? Uh, the case debate about coin. Let's talk about that. The case debate about coin. Um, I guess the, the question's not particularly specific, so I apologize if I'm not talking about what you wanted me to talk about. Um, they want you. They want you to discuss Afghanistan. They want us to just talk about Afghanistan. The country. Okay. Do you mean Coruscant? Uh, I don't want to be colonialist. Um, I guess a couple of things. I've seen. I've only seen a few debates where uh, kind of status quo good, point good, has been extended into the negative block, and I think only once or twice into the two and R. Uh, but oftentimes it's at least in the one and C, and the two AC discusses it. Sometimes the two and C or one and R will will have a little bit of a discussion of it. And the thing that I, the things that I continually find myself telling teams um, first is that. Uh, the idea that uh, you can read some evidence that we're either winning the war or losing the war uh, is not sufficient. That doesn't really mean anything because the real debate is not whether we're winning or losing, but rather what constitutes victory uh, and how to evaluate the progress of the war. Um, a lot of times the AF will read evidence that we're losing the war and it'll cite various metrics, but it will presuppose a particular definition of victory. Maybe that means stabilizing Afghanistan, instituting a pro-Western government that can effectively um, prevent uh, insurgency or prevent uh, rather uh, uh, like Al-Qaeda safe haven or whatever, prevent terrorism. 
um, and that that's like an impossible standard, whereas the negative authors that are saying that the war is successful and that we're winning will say uh, the decrease of violence, some, some sort of stabilization, uh, maybe uh, pushing uh, extremist terrorists out of the uh, state of Afghanistan, whatever. But they'll rely on different definitions of what, it, what constitutes victory, and in debates, often it's just nay card, we're winning now, versus af cards, we're losing now. Uh, without any discussion of what it means to win or lose. There are several good um, recent blog articles about this on Registan, Josh Faust's blog. Um, there are a few on Democracy Arsenal, Michael Cohen's blog, about the metrics that are used to determine success uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think that's an important component of the debates that people often miss. That's more important than are we winning or losing, because most of the assessments of the war are uh, relatively uh, consistent. Second thing is that uh, source quality is much more important in these debates than debaters give them uh, credit for. There's a big debate between people who are pro-coin and people that are anti-coin about uh, what metrics should be looked at, about what sources are reliable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, if you want a good example of that, Josh Faust on Registan um, wrote a scathing commentary about Kagan and Kagan's new uh, report in the uh, that was published by um, the American Enterprise Institute uh, early earlier this month. Um, Faust's criticism is that essentially the Kagans are totally, uh, you know, sort of hacks for the military, that they only cite, it's, it's a 40-page article, they only cite, uh, they have seven footnotes, all seven are to other Kagan articles. Um, they rely on military uh, statistics and military testimonials. They've gone on kind of green zone tours of Afghanistan with Petraeus, uh, and so only seen a particular perspective on Afghanistan, that that's unreliable. Uh, at the same time, the pro-point people say that independent uh, kind of journalists and human rights organizations are unreliable because they have a political agenda, that they ignore trends, that they don't understand counterinsurgency theory or whatever. But the debate about who to believe is more important than just reading evidence about what a particular person believes. So if the AF has evidence from journalists or from uh, the United Nations that says XYZ about Afghanistan, the NAC has evidence from the Kagans that says XYZ about Afghanistan, uh, both of those cards, independent of an assessment of who to believe, are totally irrelevant and impossible to resolve. So. Uh, I think that the two things that people could do to improve their coin debates, first, debate about what constitutes victory and why uh, particular metrics are more important, and second, who should be believed, who are the uh, reliable experts about Afghanistan and why. Uh, and I think doing those things would dramatically improve the debating on both sides of coin. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you on the defined victory. I think that's something that's like almost never debated. Um, I think kind of related to that, Debating the internal link is almost as important, I think, as debating the uniqueness. So a lot of people read, you know, regional instability impacts, like spillover to India, Pakistan, or spillover to the caucus or whatever. But the internal link into that is just, like, instability in a different part of Afghanistan. I know a lot of the, like, Pakistan stuff is, for example, like, where we're pushing the insurgents uh, with coin to what region of the country, and that's something that's almost never discussed. But, you know, the nag cards about why withdrawal causes instability are often talking about a different area or a different kind of instability than AF arguments. You know, the coin good arguments are generally about why in populated areas we can guarantee stability. So regions where there's, like, larger cities and whatnot. And a lot of the safe haven evidence is obviously not talking about large cities. Like, Al-Qaeda doesn't set up shop, you know, in the middle of 100,000 people. Uh, it's like another area. So I think debating the internal link there um, is definitely important. Uh, I also think that in a lot of these debates, you know, Batterman said source qualification is pretty important. I think people tend to ignore that and instead focus on a lot of like time sensitivity issues. Whereas like 
you know, the overall project of whether or not we're succeeding in Afghanistan doesn't really change week to week. Like new statistics may come out, but it's not really, you know, earth shattering things that are going on there. So a lot of times I see debates where people are just banking on like our evidence is from Wednesday and their card is from Tuesday. So therefore, you know, we'll control what's going on there. And I think it'd be much more important to debate kind of like where the facts and that evidence are coming from and why. Um, the last thing I'd say is that I think, you know, for the negative, if you don't have a lot of, you know, people doing updates on coin and whatnot, I think the internal link terminal impact is a lot easier to debate just because most of these things are like semi-preposterous. Like the idea that, you know, instability in Afghanistan causes like a U.S.-Russia nuke war, for example, is like an impact that I've seen both on the neg, Russia, disad, and on like affirmative advantages. And so, you know, it's, much, it's pretty easy to prove that the U.S. and Russia will not, in fact, launch all their nuclear weapons over instability in Afghanistan. So even though the app may have hyper-specific uniqueness evidence about whether or not stability is high or low, you know, shifting the debate to the most preposterous part of their internal link chain is a way to, I think, win more credible defense if you don't want to invest a bunch of time. Uh, I guess one other thing that I want to ask you about, Bannerman, kind of related to that, is that I don't think that a lot of the app internal links are solved by the way people have written their coin plan text. Like, the people who don't specify like what they remove or where they remove them, I think, don't solve probably like the overstretch internally, for example, which is generally the people who write about that are saying we need to like either get out entirely or reduce down to like a very small, you know, under 60,000 level of troops. And that's probably now what these plans would do. What do you think about that? It's just like investing in the negative as like a terminal defense argument that this isn't what your cards are talking about. Yeah, the uh, I mean, it bothers me the way that people write the plan uh, oftentimes, especially when they're unwilling to say what it means in the cross-ex. Um, I think that uh, a lot of the solvency evidence that people read, um, people read the long cards, or they used to, uh, from Austin Long's article about a very light footprint counterterrorism strategy that reduces troops to about 13,000 in the next two years. Um, I think that's really what a lot of those internal links are talking about is a small footprint counterterrorism or counterterrorism plus um, strategy. Christine Fair from Georgetown just wrote an article that kind of explains that in foreign policy. Um, if you look on foreign policy for counterterrorism plus um, on Google News, but the debate about kind of what transition strategy, what what the strategy should be um, in terms of the long-term future, so in two to three years, but also just the immediate what should be withdrawn uh, in the short-term question is something that I think is skated by a lot of people. The problem I have is that um, if you just say, you know, no solvency, your plan just reduces uh, the number of troops doing counterinsurgency operations, doesn't shift the mission, continues counterinsurgency, it still links to all the overstretch arguments or the doctrine arguments. Um, the AF will always say, well, our plan gets rid of enough and we get to control our plan, says blah, 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 our plan. And it seems like judges are very amenable to just allowing the AF to kind of get away with that. Um, in the rebuttals, I haven't seen a negative like go for it kind of all in that you know you don't really change anything. You just reduce troop levels. Um, but I do think that's a it's at least an interesting argument. I'm not sure though that that argument is something that you're going to get judges to vote for. I'm not I, sure. If I, was should, gonna, I was just about to say that. I, I think that that is a hard argument to get people to vote for, especially given how liberally people let AFs interpret their plan and sort of be sketchy in both directions about what that means. I think that, you know, in order for that argument to work, you have to have someone who's really willing to hold the line on this is what the plan means, and also... I really... But I think the communities 
I mean, maybe by the community, I mean me, because I don't really talk about other people about this, but you should not, if your plan is not clear about what you do, you do not get to just shenanigan-wise define it later on. Like, the same thing with, like, A-spec, when people are, like, they get to, like, define what it gets to be later on and stuff like that. No, it's like, you have you, you were given an opportunity in your first affirmative constructive with a plan text to specify what you did. You chose to be vague on purpose in order to get out of positions. If the negative has made arguments or reads evidence about what that would be, you do not get to be like, oh, no, 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 that's not us. I, I think that it is rare that a negative team has the sort of moxie to... Well, get the moxie, that. because there's no... I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, you know, like, I, do you like, like the moxie? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think that, you know, negatives have... Yeah, but, they, but I agree with you that apps get away with it because the negative, like, rolls over and is like, no, okay. I also think that, you know, some of the reason that people let apps do that is because the negative has gotten so many other things recently that it's like the... It's, it's hard for the negative to stand up and call foul about, like, we didn't have enough to say we couldn't, you know, do anything in the world of, you know, multiple counterplans and international counterplans and all the things that relatively recently were unheard of that have now become, you know, de rigueur. The fact that there's a lot of Ks doesn't mean that the F doesn't have to specify what their F does. Yeah, obviously. It's kind of perverse because the justification for why the F... Uh, says that they uh, can be sort of more flexible or more vague about the plan uh, is so that they don't get tied down to competition for uh, plan inclusive counterplans or for word picks. Those will cause more specific but, debates. Well, uh, well, the other problem is just that if those arguments are bad, then just beat those arguments on theory. Um, a lot of times it seems like the AF is dodging out of arguments that either don't exist or are just so horrible that they're not worth debating about. Maybe. Um, I don't think you can win a, a, a lot of picks. Ba- I think that there are judges for I mean, whom you cannot sure. win a picks bad debate, but would not You shouldn't be prepping complain. them. Those are terrible judges. Well, like, the example, I voted negative um, on a pretty well-developed vagueness argument in a debate where the, the pick that the negative read was a female engagement team's pick. And there are about 90 uh, women involved with the, this female engagement team operation. They go with population-centric coin missions and they interact with women in Afghani villages to kind of promote cultural awareness and try and you know empower women or whatever. And the plan is like substantially reduce counterinsurgency. The cross-ex of the say, do you remove female engagement teams? And I say, we're not going to tell you. And so the counter plan is substantially reduce counterinsurgency troops except for female engagement teams. I just think that argument is so preposterous that, you know, you should be able to beat that argument both on just it's a trivial net benefit and that it's not competitive, or if it is competitive, it is illegitimate. But the reason it's, it's not competitive is because your plan is fake, right? Well, but if you say in the in the uh, cross-ex, you can either say, yes, the plan removes those, or no, the plan doesn't remove those. The argument, if you say, yes, the plan removes those, that which obviously it would have to because they go along with right. counterinsurgency teams, uh, if you say, yes, the argument you're linking to is the female engagement team's good pick, which... Is it just doesn't strike me as something that you're going to lose to if you make the argument that uh, it's trivial. It's a trivial distinction. There's no solvency advocate for it, obviously, because uh, female engagement teams cannot be deployed in the absence of counterinsurgency operations. If the plan removes the counter plan removes counterinsurgency operations, it's nonsensical to just have a few women go in villages and talk to uh, Afghan women. It just seems like that <laughs> counter profoundly gender. That well, that's what they are female engagement teams. Uh, it just seems like that counter plan is so stupid that it would be. Uh, remarkable for a judge to be like, oh yeah, I gave risk to that. Well, I don't know, Bill. I can see, I mean, 
I don't disagree. Don't don't with you, don't, don't hold the judging community short here. Well, no, I was they've just made some say, remarkable decisions the, in the past. I see the exact same decision going down with a number of people where the decision is you didn't have evidence that said that the female engagement teams couldn't be deployed separately. They have they have a risk of a net benefit. You definitely withdraw these people. You know. Right. I, I mean, I guess that's fair. But that you have no offense in an offense defense world. You, the judge votes net, no question. The F has nothing to say there. All Every argument you made there was defense, which is, be, by the way, why I think offense defense is dumb. But, uh, you know, for the not insubstantial majority of people who think offense defense is the only way to evaluate debates, I mean, that's not a close debate. I mean, I guess. I think there's also a distinction, though, between, like, the specification we're looking for for teams and what their plan does for, like, solvency claims and advantage claims like Scott was talking about, and then things like, do you remove this female female team? Like, you should not, you know, like, minimum standard, you know, like, there's there's a big difference between that interpretation. Like, I think it's okay for an app to even no link out of something like that, but still not be able to say, this is what our this is what our eight-word plan about Afghanistan does. Uh, this is how we define all that in the 2AC after the negative red one and C case arguments that were like, this is what the plan would result in. No, I, I definitely uh, agree that there, you know, there's, there's sort of a line, and maybe it is just sort of you know it when you see it, but being unable to explain what the plan does or how it interacts with your solvency evidence seems to me to be clearly on the side of insufficient explanation about a plan uh, or insufficient plan writing, whereas being able to say, you know, we don't really think we need to specify whether female engagement teams are removed or not seems not to be. But, um, again, the offense-defense thing, I think, means that there's a huge incentive not to specify, especially just because it's like if if you debate most of your debates in front of judges who both think that picks are good and believe in offense-defense, then the one debate that you might lose on, like, your plan is too vague or your plan does not meet what your solvency evidence describes is worth the, you know, several rounds a tournament that people are either deterred from reading that pick or, you know, read it and then don't get competition for it, which is, by the way, again, why I think that that's a, a silly way to judge debates. But I do understand why strategically people do it. I just think there's a, it's like, Allowing that kind of set of ideologies about debate to control essentially a year's worth of debates is very problematic. And I wish that there, I mean, I think obviously uh, there's, you can't just like snap your fingers and fiat that the world of debate changes. But I think that that judging style or that assumption about the way that debate should be and the way that we should be discussing the topic is just having very perverse effects. And the end result is that the negative ends up saying really stupid things, uh, and the judge rewards that. And I think that, like, on this topic, there are really, like, four Fs or five Fs. And the quality of the arguments that the negative is making in these debates is just horrible. And I think that um, I gave our kids a little quiz about Afghanistan earlier in the year, and they didn't do very well. I'm going to give them another one at the end of the year. But my suspicious, my, my very strong suspicion is that most of the students that are debating, even at the top levels, are not learning very much about uh, Afghanistan or about Japan or whatever. Uh, maybe they're learning a little bit about the president's agenda, although they should be watching the State of the Union tonight uh, to learn more instead of watching women's tennis. Um, but I think that the the result of all of this is a worse debate community and a worse educational experience. And while uh, it might be true that that's inevitable in the short term, I think that we should do everything we can to make it not inevitable. Uh, I guess the one thing that 
I would add in there is that I don't. I really think that like a lot of the deterministic things people say, like you can't get judges to vote on this, you can't get judges to vote on that, are just like categorically false. If you just knock the crap out of someone and picks bad, no, you'll get them to vote on it. And so like this, like the way the plan is written doesn't solve. The way this works is that like they ask one question about in cross X, then it's like a two second analytic in the one and C, and then they don't go for it. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, if you like in cross X or like your plan says withdraw substantial coin presence. Do you have a single piece of evidence that describes what that means or a card that says that solves your case? And they're like, no. And then in the one C, you're like, the standard is they have to have a piece of evidence. Their authors all assume a specific amount of withdrawal. The plan doesn't do that. What can they have to say? Like, they can't say anything. They can say, we wrote that way because of picks. That doesn't mean they solved their case. Like, that's a rationale for why they wrote their plan that way, but it certainly doesn't explain that they solved their 1AC advantages. And as long as you can explain that their advantages aren't linear, then I don't know. Right, that goes back to the Moxie question, though. You have to be willing to stake the debate on arguments like that, which I think... You don't have to stake the debate. It takes you 20 seconds to explain it well, is all I'm saying. Uh, I I think maybe a little more than that. But I I guess just sort of... I think that that argument is not... I, I guess stake the debate, the debate is too strong of a term, but I, I do think that you know you do have to risk the some credibility or some chance that the judge is going to be like, what well, the goodness gracious were you doing there, um, and and go all in. And I think a lot of times that it's, I, you just used like a lot of like phrases, but I don't know what any of that meant. It you is, risk the judge is going to say what the goodness gracious when you go all in. All in is like you commit to one argument and you extend nothing else. This doesn't require you to do that. No, but I think that you do have to commit to the argument in an aggressive way that a lot of times people don't do. I think that they're, you know, that that's that that's an opportunity that is very right for people to do, but just like doesn't happen a lot of time. Okay, that was my point. Right, I was agreeing with you, which is. Why no, I said that earlier before. you were like you can't win picks bad with a large amount of people, which is the opposite of just do it good. No. I'm saying that I think most people start out with the default that picks are good. And, you know, there are some people who probably don't think picks are bad no matter how much you say. There are people who write their judge philosophies don't even bother to say picks bad in front of me. There are people who say it's not a voting issue. I've never seen anyone who said you can't well, yeah, sure, the argument that Not picks. a voting issue. You okay. don't need it to be a voting yeah, issue against the... the goes away, then sorry, what was it? Female engagement teams? Yeah, nice. you're going to win. Female easily. engagement teams, yeah. How are things not a voting issue? That's just mind-boggling. You reject the argument instead of rejecting the argument. I guess, going back to another thing about Afghanistan that Scott talked about, um, if you choose not to make the coin good arguments and don't want to say the uh, kind of withdrawal, dissent kind of arguments, the neoconservative stance, uh, I think it's really easy even... uh, piggybacking on what Scott said about kind of taking out the most absurd parts of the advantage chain, which is usually the impact arguments, you can, the fortunate thing is you can use the AF authors that make the uniqueness and solvency claims uh, to take out the impacts, because the people that say that coin is failing and that coin is a failing strategy, that we shouldn't be in Afghanistan anymore, uh, are obviously not also simultaneously saying that uh, securing Afghanistan is key to prevent nuclear war. They're saying that Afghanistan is unimportant, it's strategically irrelevant, it's not going to collapse into Pakistan, uh, you know, launching nuclear weapons at India or Russia attacking the United States. So they write fantastic, uh, rhetorically powerful, and just kind of analytically coherent impact defense arguments that criticize the neoconservative authors that apps usually cite for their impact. And I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but if the impact 
to Pakistan collapses, Kagan or uh, is uh, Max Boot or whatever, or Pitt, the, uh, the uh, card that everybody reads, and the impact to hegemony or to the collapse of U.S. Uh, credibility is Kagan, uh, you can read the indicts of those people and their position uh, and then just go for a different disad uh, to withdrawal. You don't have to kind of uh, accept the framing of the impact. And the AF is in a tough place then because they would have to defend that neoconservatives are right about the impact but wrong about everything else about the war. Uh, and in fact, that their own AF authors are wrong about the impact, which I think is a tough position to be in <laughs> uh, and not something that you can really defend. Um, but be aware of that. I've talked to a bunch of people about this after debates, but it's strange because the negative will be reading AF cards to take out the uh, AF impact, and the AF will be reading uh, nag cards to take out the uh, nag disad. So it's like uh, the the impact argument has been reversed for some reason uh, because the F needs a big impact. Uh, so otherwise there's no impact. Right. The real reason we should withdraw from Afghanistan is not because uh, not doing so will end the world, right. because there's no reason to be there. Um, and that's what the literature says. So take advantage of that if you're negative. But obviously you can't do that if you're going for the Kagan and Kagan withdrawal to say. It's funny to me that the people who argue coin good and debate rely almost exclusively on neoconservatives. And it seems like in the debate community, you'd be much better off relying on like kind of liberal imperialist style yeah. authors. I mean, I don't really see any debates where people read just like our presence there, like protects the population, protecting the population. It's not a big enough impact, Scott. Well, I mean, obviously, you'd have to read, like, an internal link from, like, population protection to, like, Sanction. signal of liberal democracy or something, right. but democracy. it's not like those internal links are any more ridiculous right. than, like, 24 hours after we pull out Pakistan explodes. Yeah, that is, I, I, I've, I've thought about that, because there are very good, just kind of liberal internationalist defenses of um, Afghanistan and nation building and kind of rehabilitating democracy promotion in the post-Bush world. Um, and it's just, it's strange that, uh, I guess it's not strange, it's predictable that the debate community has uh, kind of uh, moved toward almost entirely neoconservative authors, but there is a whole other section of people that support staying in Afghanistan. There's a lot of people that support staying there to prevent the Taliban from reinstating its uh, kind of patriarchal... Yeah, there was like that whole, was it like Time magazine that had yeah, a picture, picture on the front, front and cover. there was all those articles in there? Articles. I don't know that I saw any of those articles ever in like the 100 Afghanistan debates I've judged since that came out, but... Yeah, if nothing else, then the negative should read, uh, you, you can put that together as a case-turner argument or as a disadvantage that uh, the failure to stay in Afghanistan will cause a human rights crisis, will cause refugee uh, issues, will cause you know the reinstitution of uh, Taliban control, which causes patriarchy and uh, massive human rights abuses. Uh, I mean, it's it's not the extinction dissent, but it certainly could be part of a winning to an R strategy. Uh, yeah. So uh, hopefully this weekend is the Berkeley Forum. Uh, Maggie and Scott are going to pace around rabbit. I'm going to post this on the web, but the final round of the Michigan, I think, right, yeah, the Michigan tournament is being held on Friday morning at the Emory Berkeley Forum Tournament Hotel. Uh, I think it's at 9 o'clock, but um, I'll post that on the website if anybody is around, like gets in here Thursday night, or is a local that's around in the morning, you can go watch that debate between GBN and Westminster, um, but hopefully we'll see some new stuff at the Berkeley Forum. Uh, if you have ideas for topics, continue to give them to us. Um, there were a couple of good ones tonight, but 
we're running out of stuff to say because you all are running out of new stuff to say, and so we're kind of rehashing the same stuff over and over again. So, if you plan on being in the Elims of the Barkley Forum or late Elims, make sure if you're a guy, you have like a coat and tie and a belt. Those are useful for the Barkley Forum. Keep it classy. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about what to pack, uh, class it up. More than white socks will also be like. Don't have your uh, sneaker socks and belts. The belt is so important. Belts. Coats, tie, uh, install those things. There are very few tournaments where you need to look nice. This is one of them, so you can handle it. Only if you plan on winning it. If you don't, then you can dress terribly. It's fine. Okay. They have your approval, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Anything else, Scott? Our kids definitely do. They can dress. Maybe anything else? I'm good. All right. Thanks for listening to another three in our podcast. I'm Bill Batterman, along with Roy Lefkowitz, Maggie Rithium, and Scott Phillips. I bring the K to you. That's the east side of the A. Rolling in my Chevrolet. You know I'm blowing away. I got my swishes, my duchess, my backwards, and so much more. Anything you smoke, I bring the K to you. I bring the K to you. That's the east side of the A. Rolling in my Chevrolet. You know I'm blowing away. Got my swishers, my duchess, my backwards, and so much more. Anything you smoke, I bring the cater to you. I truly love the features on you, Georgia peaches. I truly love the features mm, on them Georgia peaches. Peace up, eight town down. 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 Noah, that boy Chevy, the music man. Come on, little song.